Hello, I'm Edwina Johnson, Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to a podcast with Louise Doughty in conversation with Geordie Williamson, recorded live at the 2016 Byron Writers Festival. For more information about the festival, please visit byronwritersfestival.com. Hello, everyone. I think you've made a, a very sensible decision uh, coming in undercover for the next hour or so and, um, and will keep you happily entertained because I have a wonderful author for you, one whom I've only just discovered. Indeed, I, I just... Louise, I just finished <laughs> your second novel uh, ten minutes before coming to see you. But it's the best way to do it because I remember everything. (laughs) I just want to read you something. This is from the West Australian. A good writer can create character. A good writer can handle a plot. A good writer can create imagery or metaphor and make you feel present in a scene. But only a great writer can do all these things at once. Louise Doughty is such a writer. Now, when I was Google-stalking Louise, I thought, that sounds a bit rich. Um, but having, having finished Dark Water, I have to wholeheartedly agree. She is a revelation to me, uh, someone who has managed the impossible task of maintaining the kind of suspense and atmosphere of a genre writer. But these are not genre titles. They are works of high literature. And she's written eight of them. The first in 1995. Louise grew up in the smallest county in England. She went to the University of East Anglia for her masters where she was taught by Malcolm Bradbury and Angela Carter. And she spent many years as a temp (laughs) in London, which I have to say, having temp myself for some time in London, I I know that that I can understand why black comedy would emerge out of of that experience, (laughs) which was the nature of her first novel, I should say. Um, And it was really with Apple Tree Yard, which was published, what, three years ago, although you've been shortlisted for numerous prizes in the interim, so you've had many success, the steams, but it was with Apple Tree Yard um, three years ago now that Louise took off. And I'm going to open um, by asking our author to read from her most recent novel to give you a sense of what I've been trying and failing to express. The only way you're, you're going to understand it is by hearing it from the, from the author's mouth. Thank you. Thank you. Can everybody hear me okay? On the, I'm all right on the mic front. Good. Um, yeah, Blackwater, it's my eighth novel. Um, that still seems to me a somewhat extraordinary sentence, really. Um, it is 21 years, 1995, since I published my first book, um, Crazy Paving. And I still feel like the kind of new kid on the block uh, publishing her first novel with each book. And it's a constant surprise to me that I'm now at the stage of being established enough to be invited 
all the way around the world to amazing festivals like these. So thank you very much um, to Geordie, but also to all the organisers at Byron. Um, I have to say, I promise I'm not just trying to suck up to you, but Australian audiences are the best in the world. <laughs> Uh, true, it's true. I've been to festivals all over the world now over the last 21 years, and I always say yes to the Australian festivals because they have the best audiences. Not the greatest weather, it has to be said. <laughs> some. Um, uh, but I feel right at home. It's We're trying to replicate Glastonbury. It is, it's just like, <laughs> it's like summer in the UK every year. Um, so I'm going to read a bit from Blackwater. It was only published last month, so I've not done many readings for it yet, and I've never read this section before. Um, but just to set it up before I start... Blackwater opens uh, with a man um, who called Harper, although that's not his real name, as you find out during the course of the book, lying awake in a hut in rural Bali, halfway up a hillside in a valley above the Ayong River. He's lying awake, and he's listening to the rain on the roof, so um, I hope you're impressed that I put the sound effects on for this reading. Um, he's also, there's a gecko on the roof above him, there's monkeys scrambling across the veranda, and he's mortally afraid. You don't know who he is or why he's there, um, but he's convinced that men with machetes are going to come and kill him. He's convinced that his life is in great danger. Um, as the novel progresses, you come to wonder whether that is indeed the case, whether uh, men with machetes are going to come and kill Harper, or whether because of events in his past, he's paranoid. Um, and what emerges during the course of the book is that what Harper is really afraid of is not something that is going to happen to him, it's something that he himself has done. It is the ghosts of his past that are going to come and get him. And it turns out that he was in Indonesia 30 years previously um, during the massacres of 1965, and the thing that he did during that time is the thing that's haunting him, and it's the ghost of that that he's truly afraid of. Um, but in this section that I'm going to read, it's um, very early on in the first chapter. Harper's had a terrible night, lying awake in the noisy evening, and he's convinced himself that when the killers come during the night, they'll wait for rain, because torrential rain, the sound of that on the roof, is what will mask their tracks as they approach the hut. Um, he wakes up in the morning after a very bad night's sleep, and he goes down to the river. He wanders down the sort of steep valley side. And he decides to write a letter to his, his ex-wife back in Amsterdam, although he's not quite sure what he's going to write. And in fact, he never sends the letter. He burns it later on in the book. Um, but he sits in his favorite spot on a rock by a pool. And he tries to come to terms with this realization that he's had in the night, that he's going to be killed. And he imagines what the the boys who come to kill him will be. He's convinced that they're boys, they will be boys, and there's a, a running theme throughout the book of masculinity. Um, there's a fantastic quote from an American uh, historian and writer called Claiborne Carson, the King Institute, where um, uh, an American friend of mine once saw a reading he did where he, he asked him, what's the biggest threat to world peace? And Claiborne Carson replied, young men. Young men between the ages of 18 and 25, particularly if they are unemployed, unmarried, and don't own property. Take them out of the picture, you have world peace. Uh, it's a rather sobering thought. Um, 
And, of course, Harper, when he was in Indonesia and did a very terrible thing, was a young man very much caught up in a time of violence. But he's now come back to Indonesia as an older man. He's in his 50s now, and he's reflecting on his younger self. So that's one of the running themes of the book. Um, the other thing it's useful to know in this passage is that Harper's mixed race. Um, he has a, a Dutch mother and uh, an Indo, a mixed race Dutch-Indonesian father who was killed by the Japanese during the Second World War uh, before Harper was born when his mother was pregnant. And Harper himself was born in a Japanese internment camp on the island of Sulawesi to his Dutch mother. Um, so that's his background. And the themes of him being mixed race sort of echo throughout the book. So this is Harper sitting on the rock by the side of the river, uh, thinking about what he believes is going to happen to him. He could picture the procession that would come up the side of the valley in the night. They would pass this very spot. He was fairly sure they would come this way because the river path led directly to the edge of town. It will be night, of course, he thought. A moonless night. They will wait for rain to mask their tracks. They will come along the path, walking in silence, the rushing of the river and the downpour on the leaves loud in their ears. Before they begin the climb up the steep side of the valley, they will pause for a cretic, crouching down beneath the large leaves of a tree for shelter, sharing one, perhaps, because they have no money and have to steal cigarettes from their fathers and uncles, something they do without compunction. Their fathers and uncles have never spoken to them about what happened before, so they believe like all youths, that they have invented bravado. <laughs> Their fathers and uncles seem like foolish old men to them. Perhaps, as they crouch and smoke, the water dripping down their necks, there will be some giggling, the kind of cold giggling that boys do before they transgress, the kind he remembered himself doing as he bullied the smaller boys at school. And all at once, as he sat on the rock above the pool, he thought, yes, at school, I was a bully. He had thought he was defending himself, but actually, he was a bully. Black bastard from Batavia, that ginger boy two years older, had called him the final thump, landing with an extra emphasis on Batavia. But it wasn't the ginger boy that Harper had beaten up. That boy had too many friends. It was a freckled kid in his own class who did no more than ask, Are you part something? Strange how that should come to him now. After the cigarette, he thought, the boys will begin to climb up through the undergrowth, the steep sides of the valley. They will use their machetes to push the ferns and creepers aside. That's something that won't be covered by the rain. It will leave a clear trail of their progress that would be appreciated by any investigator, except that there will be no investigation. As they near the hut, they will pause again, crouching down, observing the dark bulk of the construction above them, listening to the clatter of the water on the roof. And now the adrenaline will start to flow in their veins and the smallest and youngest of them will be overwhelmed with the need to pee and the one in charge, his big brother, will be most frightened of all and so hiss urgent instructions to the others, hiding his fear in his commands. Perhaps the boule will make it easy for them. The boy in charge will be hoping if he roars or picks up an object to fight back, 
then it will be easy to cut him down because then they will be threatened and have no choice. The big boy is hoping this is what will happen. And he, Harper, alone in his hut, perhaps he will be awake, thanks to the gecko, or perhaps, just for once, he will be sound asleep. They will come through the window. The shutters will be easier to smash than the doors. It will make a racket, of course, even above the rain, but out here that won't matter. It will be too late by then. There is only one window and one door, and both lead out onto the same veranda. He will have nowhere to hide. Gentlemen, one of the uncomfortable experiences of reading Louise's novels is that she has our number. And as you... (laughs) In fact, there was a passage um, from Apple Tree Yard that I had to photograph uh, this morning at breakfast and send to my wife. And it was about the ways in which women are deemed to be opted in to family life and all the obligations, domestic or otherwise, that arise from it. And men are only opt-in when required. <laughs> it, was, it was posed in much more elegant language than that. So I took a photo of it, sent it to my wife and said, um, is this how you feel? <laughs> Within a moment, my phone beeped. And she said, hole in one. But reading that passage uh, and thinking about all of the other instances that rhyme with it throughout the book and indeed through Apple Tree Yard as well, I, I see you as a kind of anthropologist of gender or maybe even, God help me, a zoologist of gender. Uh, but you, you're very interested. It's a, it's, a, it's a finely poised thing. You're very interested in men. I think, I think that you like men but you also pity us slightly and have have our number. Um, can you tell me about your interest in the way that men actually operate and how this might be significant in the larger fictional world you've created? Well, you're not the first man who said that um, about Harper. I think one critic said I'd got something like so I seem to have nailed the middle-aged male with frightening accuracy or something like that. It's very pleasing, of course. It's a great comment. Um, it, well, I just, it makes me think how... how uh, I mean, not only have you done a great job, but it also means we must be transparent too. Oh, uh, you're certainly not transparent. <laughs> I can tell it takes a lot of work. Um, I think I am endlessly fascinated in the idea to which our personalities are controlled by gender or indeed a personality type or any of the genetic elements that we're born with and to what extent it is about context. Um, And I think uh, my starting point is always that we are all the same under the skin regardless of gender, race, nationality, sexuality, any other surface difference that you care to mention. But I think having written quite a few novels from a female point of view... I really did feel that with Harper and Blackwater, I just wanted to tackle a novel from an entirely male point of view. I mean, I've had sections of other novels. Fires in the Dark was about two-thirds male and about a third female. Mm. But this was the first novel where I'd ever tried to say, right, it's all Harper's story. 
um, even though it's in the third person, it's only his perspective. And I really wanted to try and get inside this middle-aged man and see what he was made of, really. Um, I didn't find it difficult in the sense that I think in terms of character and personality type, you can use a lot of the common human feelings. I mean, certainly about being middle-aged, about regret, about looking back over your life, about hopes for the future, about the issue of how, you know, when you meet someone in your 50s, whether it's a potential lover or even just a friend, you both know you have so much backstory. You know, how do you get to know somebody when there's so much past to cover? There's a beautiful but line where you say... Uh, the, he's seducing Rita and she says when they're telling backstories let's just agree to leave out the sad bit shall we yeah yeah and he's rather touched by that and rather and he's actually as it turns out got quite a lot of sad bits to leave out um I think if there was a challenge in writing from a male point of view it wasn't so much in feeling and emotion and character it was about language um and that was something I was very careful about in the early chapters of the book, in fact, just after the bit I read, he, he, go, he decides to go to town, a nearby town, which is Ubud, um, which I'm sure many of you know and have visited. Um, it's the 1990s. It's um, set in the past, but it is still a, it's a touristy town. He's going to do some shopping. He's going to look around. And in the first draft, I had the line that he was going to go to town to do a bit of shopping. And then I thought, no. do a bit of shopping implies shopping as a leisure activity. And at the risk of generalizing, I don't think most men regard shopping as a kind of pastime, as a leisure activity, something they would do with a friend to while away a few hours <laughs> in a pleasant way. And I changed that line to pick up a thing or two or pick up a few things because I thought Harper, it's exactly the same activity. In actual fact, he is going there to while away the hours, but he wouldn't use that language to describe that activity to himself. And the other one, which I did leave in, even though a male friend said it was a female thought, was when he's going around the night market, he sees um, a, a, a stall of plastic goods uh, and one with a lot of flip-flops. And he's a, he's a kind of man who would never wear a flip-flop. He has old boots. He's had military training. He's done his national service in Holland. Um, and then he's, he's gone into what is effectively a, uh, a firm of mercenaries, and he's, he's worked with spies, he's worked with the military, so he would never wear sort of leisure wear like a flip-flop. He wears old boots. And he says something about what an ugly item of clothing it is. Why wear something that leaves your foot so exposed? No foot, male or female, is ever flattered by a flip-flop. Now, I was rather pleased with this line. I liked the alliteration, you know. I kind of had one of those little writerly moments. Oh, this is good. <laughs> almost always a sign you should cut it. But a male uh, friend who read the novel said, that's a female thought. No foot is ever flattered by a flip-flop. And I did think he might have a point. That one survived. That one I left in just because I kind of liked right. the line. Of so course, it's about language, I think, rather than perception. Of course, we call them thongs. So let's oh, change rude. the let's no, change no, but let's anecdote. change the sentence. We lose the alliteration, but it's kind of cool. No man or woman is ever flattered by a thong. <laughs> thongs are something quite different where I come from, <laughs> but the same is probably also true. Yes, no, uh, thong, thongs are also a, a crucial uh, hinge points in Apple Tree Yard, but we'll get to that later. <laughs> now. Harper is a fascinating human being. Uh, he's a very divided figure. In the green room, I mentioned um, I mentioned the, the sense of being in a kind of Greenland. Who who knows what I mean when we speak about Greenland? 
it's the land that Graham Greene created. Mm. It's a kind of a metaphysical condition. It's that whiskey priest sense of, of, of spiritual despair and disgrace. And you, I sense that you, you while it, you, that's lovely to be told, there's also a sense in which he is not like a green character. And I wondered if you could tutor me in the ways of rightness in this, how how Harper is and is not uh, a, a creature like one of Green's. Yes, I, I'm, I'm glad you picked up on that one because of, of course I love Green's novels. I think he's a fantastic novelist, but um, the one novel I really didn't want to write because we've had more than enough of them is, you know, White Man in an Exotic Climate, Finding It Strange and Threatening. You know, those were the books of a particular era um, and I think that era is very much gone. Um, at the same time, I didn't have the life experience to write from the point of view of an, an Indonesian person. Um, I think you can write from the point of view of a foreign nationality, but I think you have to spend many years and, and live in a country if you're really going to get under the skin of the way people think and feel and the nuances of language. And I've only been to Indonesia three times. You know, I just didn't have that level of experience and understanding of it. So really, I mean, the only answer was to make it mixed race. And then once I'd done that, I found that unlocked all sorts of other thematic um, ideas that I wanted to get at. Um, the fact that Harper is mixed race means that he's a chameleon. He's a global citizen. He doesn't belong anywhere. You call him a citizen of no nation. I love that. A citizen of no nation, yeah. And although he doesn't fit in anywhere, it also means he can sort of pass everywhere as well. And when he's growing up, I mean, he's imprisoned with his mother. His mother's a white Dutch woman imprisoned by the Japanese. When he goes back to the Netherlands after the war, he's called black. He's bullied for being black. When he moves to California, and there's a whole section set in California in Los Angeles in 1950 at the height of the civil rights movement, his mother marries a black GI, so he has a black stepfather and a mixed-race white-black half-brother and a black grandfather who's married to a Latina woman. It's a real rainbow family in the 1950s. And he goes to a black school where he's bullied for being Japanese. It's post the Second World War, post Pearl Harbor. They think he's Japanese. Um, and there is a line in the book where he says when he goes to Indonesia, the further east he flies, the whiter he becomes. Because at the point the novel opens in 1998, he's working for a large, powerful organization with hard dollars, and the, the manservant who looks after him in his hut regards him as white. Um, and it was, it was very interesting for me to play with the idea of a man being a chameleon, because it's, it's caused it's a lot of problems for him, but it's also what's made him very good at his job because he is a man who has to slip in and out of society. And in Jakarta in 1965... He's going in undercover, dressed in a sarong, and taking part in street demonstrations. When he goes to a Western hotel, he takes off the sarong, he puts on a white shirt and loose trousers and a Panama hat and says ciao to the doorman. They all think he's Italian. And there's a line where he says everybody loves Italians because they're really hopeless at invading other countries, which is <laughs> true. Um, lots of people pretend to be Italian. Um, and um, it was a... A gift, really, as a novelist, to have a character like that um, who had this kind of shapeshifter quality. There's, there's a killer line uh, where he's standing in a bar back in Holland and a, a white woman is, is trying to pick him up and she says, I've never met a Niger. Yeah, I'm not how it's pronounced. Before, would you like to come to a party with me later on? I've got people who would love to meet you. And he said, no, thanks, I've met enough white people. 
Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we we talk about his uh, the ways in which he's poised and and almost opportunistic in 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 strong ways. Mm. You know, he's not a victim necessarily of his mixed race background. He uses it to his advantage. But another aspect of his uh, of who he is is his age. And this sense of a man in his 50s who has, um, and I, I don't want to give too much away, but his life, which is only you, you really make us work. Uh, she, we're given dribs and drabs and every part is more horrible than the last, quite frankly. Um, but there's this sense that he's reached a certain point. And I think of the narrator of Apple Tree Yard... Mm. I think of Harper, and I think you are a laureate of the middle age. And <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm going to have that on the paper. <laughs> I know, I, think, I know. What, what, what a killer blurb. <laughs> <laughs> Sales will plummet. <laughs> but but I, uh, particularly if we go back to Apple Tree Yard, which is also a spectacularly good and suspenseful novel, but it's not necessarily a suspense it's it's a metaphysical drama it's Dostoevskyan really but this um, willingness to embrace the idea of the middle-aged body of what sex is like between middle-aged people why this fascination is it merely that you're tracking your own experience as you move through life even though you're only 32 <laughs> yeah speak uh, with care <laughs> that's all I'm saying yeah, the, I'm not that far behind you, don't worry. <laughs> that, um, yeah, the, the fact that I'm middle-aged may be relevant here. Uh, certainly my heroes and heroines do seem to be ageing at roughly the same rate as myself. Although I was actually slightly younger than Yvonne. I think I was in my late 40s when I was writing Yvonne. She's 52, She's 52. in the novel. I'm 52 mm. now. But it did strike me. It was very odd when Apple Tree Yard was published. Um, the way in which uh, interviewers and reviewers responded as if I had done something incredibly radical in having a middle-aged woman have sex. I mean, people really did say, oh my, you know, how, yeah, that's very brave, you know. And um, it, uh, there is this odd idea that I think as, as women, there's lots of young women in fiction, you know, often as the kind of beautiful young love object to the male hero. You occasionally get older women because the more wrinkly we get, the more we acquire gravitas. And I'm looking forward to that bit. But it's like there's this lacuna in the middle of our lives, the middle-aged woman, where we are supposed to be more or less invisible. Or our function is to act as a kind of enabler for the people around us, for our domestic lives, our families, and so on. And I really did want to, without, uh, genuinely without thinking I was doing anything that radical, put a middle-aged woman who has a sexual relationship at the heart of the novel. And I think that's probably why Apple Tree Yard um, struck such a core. Um, struck such a core? Sorry, that was the jet lag <laughs> kicking in. <laughs> Got to the core of something. Um, and... Uh, it did, it did surprise me that people regarded it as a very conscious, radical thing to do, as opposed to what really, to me, was quite natural. Mm. Occasionally, people are slightly outraged by it. I did have one review on Amazon which said, no woman would ever behave like this. Which I thought, <laughs> no woman? How many billions of us are there in the world? None of us. Um, <laughs> she seems to operate perfectly reasonably <laughs> to me. <laughs> um, I think it's Martin Amos who said... First they look at you, then they look away from you, 
then they look through you. That's the three ages of man. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I do agree that there was, there was, as a reader, it's not something that I've necessarily encountered very often in fiction. So I, I, it may be a horrible thing to admit that it's radical, mm. but nonetheless, mm. I found it so. Um, but sex itself, can we talk about sex? Why not? Yeah, let's liven the... the <laughs> it's post-lunch, everyone's a little sleepy. Let's get right in there, folks. Look, there's a lot of sex in these books. And <laughs> what, we know about, what we know about English fiction is, of course, that, that sex is just impossible to do. Uh, in fact, so impossible is it to write well about sex that uh, uh, the... I think it was Auburn Moore who set it up, wasn't it, originally? Yeah. The Bad Sex Award which some of you may have noted from time to time. And, and let's acknowledge it, it has celebrated some truly awful writing about sex over the years. Nonetheless, I was taken aback because you write about sex unashamedly, beautifully, and it's these sultry books. Uh, well, Apple Tree Yard is. I mean, there isn't really that much sex. In but this black is very yes, water, it's very. But there is a sexual encounter early on. But it's uh, sort of gentle. You know, it's it's yeah. not. It's it's dealt with in interesting ways. Yeah. I'm a bit more blunt in Apple Tree Yard. I think you can safely <laughs> say. I mean, the the tricky thing with Apple Tree Yard, um, for those of you who don't know the book, it's about a scientist um, called Yvonne. And as it opens, you find her in the on the witness stand at the Old Bailey, and um, she's on trial herself. She's giving witness in her own trial, and you don't know why she's there or what she's done, but you know that it's her lover in the dock and not her husband, and you know that she's about to be caught out in a very damaging lie. She's about to be exposed. And the novel then goes back, and chapter one um, goes back to the beginning of an, uh, an affair she has had, and she's giving evidence one day to a House of Commons Select Committee. She's a very sort of high-achieving research scientist, and she meets a man in the corridor and has what I believe is colloquially known as a knee trembler um, with him in the chapel, the crypt chapel of St Mary Undercroft underneath the Great Hall in the Palace of Westminster. And now it's a high-risk thing to do because it is obviously, well, I mean, also to write about, but um, it's a high-risk thing to write about because if you do that in your first chapter, I knew that Yvonne was doing something out of character. And as you read on in the novel, you realise that actually the whole point of this is that all her life, Yvonne has done the right thing. She's been a good wife and mother. She's recycled. She's done everything she's supposed to do. Um, and then she gets this one unexpected offer that comes from nowhere, and she completely steps out of character and does something she had never believed herself capable of. Um, but obviously when the reader's reading the novel, they don't know that about Yvonne in that first chapter. And I knew it was a risky thing to do because I knew there'd be some people who go, what? Um, it's only as the novel progresses that you realise how out of character this is for her. I did um, have a tour of the Houses of Parliament uh, in order to research this with the police officer who's in charge of emergency and events planning. So if there's a chemical attack, he's the one in charge of sort of putting the building into lockdown. And um, so we, we spent several hours walking around the building and we're going up and down corridors. And I'm going, where are the um, CCTV cameras on this corridor exactly? I'm going past disabled toilets thinking, oh, good, I can use that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, the Houses of Parliament, you can, they're full of nooks and crannies and deserted offices and storerooms. I mean, we think they're running the country. They are at it like rabbits. I'm convinced. <laughs> and there's so many opportunities in there. 
And we went down into the chapel um, under the Great Hall, and he did what the, the character does in the novel, which is he got the keys from a security guard and opened it up, and it was deserted. And we were, and I thought, great, this is perfect, perfect for my opening scene. Um, and he showed me the cupboard where there's the, the plaque to Emily Wilding Davidson, uh, the feminist who threw herself under the king's horse at the Epsom Derby. Um, and Tony Benn had a plaque put up to her because on the night of the 1911 census, she hid in that room so that she could register her place of um, dwelling as the Houses of Parliament at a time when women were not even allowed to vote. So, extraordinary woman. And I just thought, fantastic, because the irony of this, Yvonne, who is such a high-achieving woman, who has done brilliantly in a man's field, commits this one act of passionate folly in this place, a place which is almost a place of kind of sacred worship um, to feminists. And I, I thought it was an amazing place. Um, and um, it, was, it was fantastic. So it's very, very useful. I mean, obviously, go out and do your primary research because that's when you get to see these kinds of places. But imagine my embarrassment when I gave a copy of Apple Tree Yard to that cop. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought of him reading that first chapter thinking, that dirty cow. You know? <laughs> That's what she was thinking. <laughs> anyway, if, I can, if you want to picture this man, if you imagine, you remember the Muppets? You know, if you imagine a six foot three male version of Miss Piggy, um, <laughs> this man's virtue was completely safe with me. But I couldn't really say that either as I handed it over, could I? Your virtue was safe with me, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Fun fact, every year before the Queen's speech, I think there is a symbolic search of every nook and cranny of the, uh, of the Houses of Parliament in case Guy Fawkes is down there to, to, to blow things up. But you did so in a different way. I, <laughs> I was fascinated by the psychosexual dynamics mm. at work. There's a moment when um, our heroine in Apple Tree Yard, or anti-heroine, um, discovers that her husband is having an affair and for the first time she sees him angry. It's actually quite shocking. Mm. This gentle, distracted scientist is full of rage. And there's a moment in Dark Water where Harper grabs the arm of Rita and unloads verbally on her and he watches her posture become carefully submissive and at that moment, he realises that she's been physically abused earlier in her life and feels this terrible sense of shame. It strikes me that you're somebody who there is no overt didacticism, no ideological bent that I note, but in tiny little, almost microscopic moments of social interaction, you bring out a kind of violence at work, uh, and I wonder whether this is something you consciously work towards, or it just comes out of human observation, and there's an unfortunate, tragic misprision between male and female visions of the world, and how to be in it. Um, I think it's both. Um, I think it does come out of observation, essentially, and I think everybody in this room <laughs> will have had enough relationships to write a novel <laughs> because in every single human relationships whether it's with a member of a family or with a lover or husband or wife or friend the nuances of that relationship what you're really saying to each other when you talk um, you know the minute you start to sit down and decode 
what you're actually saying to each other in an otherwise banal conversation. I think we all know that those things are there. And observation is at the heart of any writing, I think. Any writing, it's just a matter. And anyone can have the skills of a novelist if they sit in a cafe for three hours and look at the people around them. And if you look at the people on the table next to you and just listen to what they're saying and try and work out how they really feel about each other, you'll get it in 10 minutes flat. Um, so I think it, it is about being an observer and a forensic observer, I think, and possibly a bit of a spy. Mm. <laughs> I mean, this is an interesting point you raise, though. We mentioned Graham Greene before. What does Greene say? That the true writer must have a splinter of ice in the heart. But I don't feel that you necessarily have a splinter of ice. You're forensic, yes, mm. but there's empathy there as well. Are you... Do you think that this is also a, a difference in perspective based on gender? Um, I'm not sure that that is necessarily to do with gender in the sense that I think all writers have to be essentially empathetic. I mean, I think Graham was kind of loading it on a bit there because he probably quite liked the idea of himself being a, a man with a splinter of ice in his heart. I think that... Anybody with a splinter of ice in their heart can make the observation, but if you're going to write like Graham Greene, you have to have the empathy. Um, and I think that's where the greatness of his work um, comes from. I mean, I, I reread some Greene uh, a couple of years ago, and it's very interesting to read him and think, what does make this person a great writer? Because I think he is ineluctably a great writer. And quite often with great writers, it's the, the overt beauty of their prose. It's the way that they throw a sentence and they do it so beautifully, and it's spinning on the potter's wheel, and they just make it into something gorgeous. But Graham Greene doesn't have those beautiful sentences in a very obvious way. His prose is quite transparent. It's a window through which you see his story. But I think what makes him great is the level of observation, um, the level of observation of human character, whether it's Pinky in Brighton Rock or whether it's the narrator in The End of the Affair, you feel that these people really exist. You feel you just walked past them in the street and you saw them and you're real. And that's such an instinctive gift. Um, I, I think that all, all great writers like Green have that on some level. I think he was trying to play the hard man with that um, splinter of ice quote, actually. When you read Apple Tree Yard and Dark Water, what you'll discover is that a major character in each is not actually a living, sentient creature, but a place. In the case of Apple Tree Yard, it's London, and London described in a kind of microscopic detail. Um, I, th I think we have to go back to, I know, London Fields or Mrs. Dalloway before you get to a novel that is so... L uh, not Mrs. Dalloway. Yes, Mrs. Mrs. Dalloway, um, which is so... Uh, located and so grounded in place um, and dark water well the dark water of the title uh, uh, refers to a canal the dark canal mm. water it's a really um, lovely terrible image um, but it is Indonesia again that um, seems to become a character in the novel to what degree um, is the architecture and tone of your work um, determined by the setting? 
Well, very much so. Uh, and I'm, I'm glad you noticed that because I've worked really hard on those bits. Um, I mean, Apple Tree, are, I've lived there um, in London for 30 years now, so it's something I know very well. But I did get the, tri the title when I walked past a real Apple Tree yard. It's in St. James's. It's exactly where it's described in the book. Um, and I just walked past it, and that phrase just stuck in my head. In fact, I did notice on Twitter last year that somebody was doing walking tours literary walking tours around London and they were doing an apple tree yard tour and they were going around Westminster and the House of Parliament and um, the Old Bailey and apple tree yard itself and I did I did tweet them I did say what are you going to do with your with your customers when you get to apple tree yard are you going to pair them off and send them down the alleyway <laughs> anyway they never responded so clearly they didn't think it was very funny um, but in a way that was an easy one because I walked around what has become my adopted hometown and um you know, I just had to get the, the bus into town. Indonesia, I chose to write a whole novel set in a long-haul destination when I had two school-aged children. I must have been nuts, um, really. Um, I, I realized once it was too late to back out that it was crazy to, have, to be setting this whole novel um, in a country that was so far away from my own. Um, there's a certain amount of research you can do online, obviously, certainly in terms of facts, the facts of a country's history, um, you can do plenty of that, but there's, there's something you can only get by getting on a plane and getting there, and it's the, the smells, the sounds, um, the atmosphere, that sort of nebulous quality that you get in the air, the combination of all those things. You can really only get that by visiting the territory of your novel. There's no substitute for that, and, and that's what I did have to do with Blackwater. Mm. I should say these are not just about place. They're also about time. And one of the glorious and infuriating things about Louise's novels is they make time into a kind of um, a field of suspense. You don't get all the information at the right time. You get it when Louise wants you to have it. And I think that that's definitely what draws you through. But I was struck by the sophistication and complexity of of the the time schemes that you use in both novels. Um, has this something you've developed over time? Is it hard Definitely. to manipulate time as it's a novelist? It's really, really hard. I think it's the hardest thing you can do. And, I mean, Apple Triad in particular, at least Blackwater has a, a frame, which is it begins in 1998, it goes back into Harper's past, he's born in 1942, and then at least it moves consecutively forward to 1965, and then it comes around full circle to 1998 again. That's relatively simple in comparison with what Apple Tree Yard does, because Apple Tree Yard begins with the Vaughan on trial in the prologue. It then goes back in time to when she meets the man that becomes her undoing. But then within the flashback, the first two thirds of the novel are flashback, there's flash forwards, there's foreshadowing to the trial. Mm. And that was an incredibly complicated time structure. I mean, there's no way I could have done that um, as a first novel. And uh, there were times when I got a bit confused myself. I had to draw <laughs> a few charts with that one to make sure I kept control of it all. Well, I mean, it's the old story, isn't it? There are only two perfect novels. And, and one is The Great Gatsby and the other is Ford Maddox Ford's The Good Soldier. And mm. I thought about Ford Maddox Ford's dazzling use of time mm. in that novel when reading Apple Tree Yard. I really... I, commend this to you uh, as a kind of masterclass in how to put it together yourself. Try it um, if you can. Um, 
I, I, I think we're, we're getting late on, so I wanted to actually give you the opportunity to shout out some questions of Louise. Mm-hmm. Five minutes left. <laughs> All right, five minutes. There's a question right from the outer field. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, hi, I read a review of your book in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald about Blackwater where you said that the British uh, do not have an imagination of Indonesia because there was no uh, background. Uh, <laughs> I don't, oh, maybe I'm picking a bone here, but uh, Britain actually ran Indonesia <laughs> for a while about um, during the time when the Dutch uh, were busy fighting wars on the other side of the world and I've forgotten his name now but the guy who founded Penang was actually asked to come to Indonesia, early 1800s and it's not for nothing that Jala Maliaboro in Jogjakarta mm. really comes from the word Marlborough, the Duke of Marlborough and not the cigarette. Um, so I'll be really interested to read your book um, and uh, I'm glad that you actually made the effort to go there because quite a few people write about Indonesia <laughs> and particularly Bali who've never been there really. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. There's a certainly a huge amount of ignorance in British culture about Indonesia. There's no doubt about that. There, there's a huge amount of ignorance in Australian culture I, about Indonesia. I can't Indonesia. believe anybody is as ignorant mm. <laughs> as we are in uh, the UK. But, but, but just to, to respond mm. to that, uh, that, that mm. statement, I think that the fair point to make is that there is a kind of an imagination of imperium in 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 English culture and at the at the the top of the pyramid is India of course yeah. the jewel in the crown Australia uh, was always the kind of the ugly cousin trying to do its best we only had emus um, but that sense that historically accurate as it may be, it just didn't enter into the imagination in the same way. Mm. Um, but yes, I, I, I mean, I, I have no, no knowledge to add to, <laughs> to this Indonesian depiction, but it seemed very real to me. Mm. Anyone else? Sorry, this is not a, a particularly interesting question. I just wanted to ask, as a novice, I haven't actually read any of your works yet, but as a definitive book to start with, uh, which what would you recommend? Because I've been intrigued hearing about the works and coming from England myself. I'm really curious uh, at where to start, really, I suppose. That's a tricky one to ask me, really. We should ask Geordie. Um, <laughs> I mean, Apple start with crazy paving, work your way no, forward. No, no, don't start. <laughs> Skip the first three. <laughs> Early work. Slightly embarrassed, they're still in print. Um, I mean, I hit my stride with my fourth novel, which is Fires in the Dark, which is a historical novel. It's a Holocaust novel. It's set during the Second World War. Um, the, my fifth novel, Stone Cradle, is also a historical novel. That's my family history. I tend to go all over the place a bit, so I'd probably need to know a bit more about your personal preferences to know where to suggest you start. But Apple Tree Yard was the first book of mine. It was the first one that was a bestseller. It's novel number seven. It was the one that seemed to most strike a chord with a wide readership. Um, obviously, you always have a sort of certain fondness for the one that's just come out, Blackwater, because that's the one that you're, you're really hoping to get out there. And I think that 
Blackwater is possibly my most sophisticated and in many ways, I, I'm not sure I should use it, but the most literary, I don't know. I, I mean, that's a very loaded word. Mm. Um, Apple Tree Yard is the one that's a kind of racier read in some ways. Um, in terms of personal preference, on my point of view, I have a real fondness for Stone Cradle, the fifth one, because that's about my family ancestry. So I have a kind of emotional attachment to that, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the one you should well, start I with. I think that's where I'll start then. Okay. <laughs> we have, I think we have one, one more, and, mm -hmm. and we'll, we'll make it very quick. <laughs> Thank you. Um, what about whoever you love? Whatever you, whoever whatever you love. You, love. you haven't mentioned that. I thought it was brilliant. I uh, oh, couldn't put you. it down. Thank you. Uh, it was very nice of you to yeah. say so. I mean, whatever you love was the one that was shortlisted for the Costa Prize and longlisted for the Orange. And that was certainly the one that stepped me up a bit. The first five, you know, I was sort of reasonably well reviewed and didn't sell awfully well. And then whatever you love took me up a step and then Apple Tree Yard a bit further. Um, yeah, I'm very, I mean, whatever you love is, is a tough breed, I think, in lots of ways. But, yeah, I think that was me moving into my mature phase. Um, and really the last three books, Whatever You Love, Apple Tree Yard and Blackwater, are, I think, uh, the first three, like I said, slightly embarrassing, two historical ones which I'm fond of, um, and then I think um, really novel six, seven and eight, whatever you love, Apple Tree Yard and Blackwater are, if you like, my mature phrase. But thank you for saying that, because yeah, you're right, I hadn't included that in the list. And it took Graham Greene that many novels to get going as well. Mm -hmm. So I think we can say with some degree of confidence that Louise is only just building up a head of steam. So I'll be really excited <laughs> to see what you publish next. And thank it's you. been a great honour and a delight to have you. So thank you, Louise. Thank you, Jodie. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2016. You can find other recorded talks and discussions on our website, byronwritersfestival.com.